his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome and thank you, as always, for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Picture yourself not outside on a lovely Sunday in the Bay Area, as most of us might be later today, but picture yourself in jail, physically dependent upon the system which has suspended your freedom in punishment for a crime. You have no income, obviously no freedom of movement. Now, some may think incarceration means that physical needs are met, but in many cases, they're not. So now imagine yourself incarcerated as a woman in need of basic menstrual hygiene products, which are not always made available by the prison. Or imagine you're a pregnant woman who can still be shackled for court appearances or put in solitary confinement and, above all, facing the idea of giving birth in jail. Amid the continuing Russia revelations and the focus on the Senate GOP health care bill in D.C., some may have missed the introduction of the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act. It was introduced earlier this week, sponsored by Democratic Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Cory Booker of New Jersey, co-sponsored by California's Kamala Harris and Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. This act would require federal prisons to provide free quality menstrual hygiene products to female inmates. It would ban shackling them during pregnancy or placing them in solitary confinement. It would require the consideration and location of a woman's children when deciding where she as an inmate might be placed in prison, make it easier for her to communicate with her family with more visiting, interaction with kids, not charging for phone calls. Now, the number of women being jailed has soared in the United States over the last several decades to more than 200,000. That count as of 2014, so several years ago. Women now the fastest growing segment of the prison population. Their physical and their medical needs aren't always taken into consideration. Even though jail may sometimes be the most consistent place, some of these women ever find care. So we're going to talk about all of this, and we're very lucky to have someone with a unique perspective. Dr. Carolyn Suffren, obstetrician, gynecologist at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Suffren treated pregnant women in the San Francisco County Jail for several years. And now as a medical anthropologist, with this expertise in her background, she's authored a new book, Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars. We're very happy to have you here, Dr. Suffren. Welcome to In-Depth. Thank you, Jane. I'm very happy to be here today. Will you paint a bit of a picture? I tried in the opening to imagine myself in that position and to help listeners imagine themselves as a woman in jail, a pregnant woman in jail. But you treated these women for what, more than five years in the San Francisco County Jail. What is it like? Well, it's very different depending on what jail a woman is at. And where I had the most exposure and the most experience at the San Francisco jail, things are a little bit different and comparably a little bit better than at other jails. But it's still not comfortable and it's still not very 
very good. Um, and so what it might look like for a pregnant woman um, is she um, would be on a bottom bunk, um, and that would be considered a privilege um, that get, has to be authorized by the medical staff. So that that's one of the few considerations for a pregnant woman in jail is that she would be given a bottom bunk. Yes, because you don't want a pregnant woman climbing up to a top bunk um, and risking falling down. If she falls from the top bunk, that is, um, I mean, it's dangerous for anybody, but it can be dangerous for the pregnancy too. Sure, but but I guess my my astonishment is that that would be considered a special dispensation of sorts, that it wouldn't just be an automatic. That's correct. Yeah. It's considered a special privilege and something that requires authorization to ensure that you have it. Now, at other jails, and I've heard this from the women whom I met who have been to some other jails, um, for instance, in the the San Mateo County Jail, I heard from a woman recently um, who was pregnant, seven months pregnant there, the um, the she was given a bottom bunk. It was the bottom of four bunks, and it was only just barely off the ground, and there was barely enough room for her and her pregnant seven-month pregnant belly at the time, and she found it extremely hard to even just get out of that, that bed. Um, but nonetheless, a bottom bunk becomes a special privilege when you're in this environment of relative deprivation that you have to be given that privilege, um, which is you know medically safer than a top bunk. So there are a lot of considerations just about the very physical environment and things that we take for granted um, if you're not incarcerated. And then as her pregnancy progresses, if she's still in jail, she has to rely on um, uh, on medical care in the jail. At some jails, that medical care may be up to community standard of care. But at many other jails around this country, um, there might not be a qualified prenatal care provider on site. Um, and there may not be somebody who is experienced in the care of pregnant women. In addition, if a pregnant woman in jail has any symptoms or any complaints like bleeding or pain um, or feels anything at all, she has to go through a deputy or a correctional officer in order to um, access medical care. They are the gatekeepers. And if she were in the community, she could just pick up the phone and call her doctor or come to the clinic. Um, she has that free will, that, that free movement. But in the jail, she doesn't have control over her access to medical care. And so you have untrained, untrained people who are not trained as medical professionals, correctional officers or deputies, who are the gatekeepers and the point of triage of deciding whether or not to contact the medical staff for this pregnant woman. And then um, as the pregnancy progresses, um, the woman, if she's still in jail, she's all, she's all alone. I mean, yes, she's surrounded by other incarcerated people, some of whom she may know, some of whom she may get to know. Um, but she's separated from her usual support systems. And um, I've talked to so many women who were pregnant in jail who had so many fears and so many anxieties. What's going to happen if I go into labor, are they going to take me to the hospital? Am I going to be am I going to be shackled on the way to the hospital when I give birth? Who's going to take care of my baby? I can't bring my baby back to jail with me. Am I going to be able to breastfeed my baby? Is my baby ever going to know who I am? Um, it's how am I? I'm going to just be all alone. And so there there are a lot of fears and anxieties 
um, that women women have and a lot of isolation that they feel. A lot of them are also afraid of what they might um, encounter in terms of how they're treated by the deputies or the correctional officers and worry about the safety of their own developing pregnancy. Um, in terms of when a, a pregnant woman who's incarcerated goes into labor, it's you know it's highly variable what happens. Um, again, you know the with the deputies and correctional officers as the first point of contact, they should, from a medical perspective, um, just always call the medical staff because that is not their expertise. And a lot of symptoms in pregnancy that are concerning can be extremely subtle, um, and so. You know, um, if she if she does go into labor while she's in custody, she would be transported to a nearby hospital, um, and uh, she would give birth. And uh, there are only um, 22 states in this country right now that have laws that prohibit the use of restraints uh, when pregnant women are giving birth. Only 22 states during labor. During labor. Not even some states, their their laws um, go into more detail about prohibiting it throughout pregnancy. Some laws don't, but we're just talking about the very basic during labor when a woman is birthing a child. You were talking about the protocol of being transported to the hospital to deliver. That was that's how it is or was when you were at San Francisco County Jail. We don't we don't know what it's like at every jail, what the protocols are. Um, was there always a medical person on staff 24-7 at the jail? Not necessarily a, a, a specialized gynecologist, but just a general medical professional on staff. Yes, there is at the San Francisco jail, there are always nurses um, who are in the jail 24-7 um, who are the first point of, of medical triage. But that would be, of course, if the correctional guards felt that access to the nurse was warranted. That's correct. Okay. Uh, and that was one of my questions was, was, do we have any statistics on pregnancy outcomes or for successful outcomes with a live, healthy birth, being born in jail may have implications because uh, that, that would depend on how long the mother is incarcerated or care outside of, of the mother's abilities. I'm really glad you asked that question because I, I used to think we had some idea of how many pregnant women there are who are incarcerated. Um, and I used to throw around the statistic, 6 to 10% of incarcerated women are pregnant at any given time. And a lot of my colleagues who do research in this area would similarly cite that statistic. And when I began to think about it more and look into it more, I realized that that number comes from a report put out by the Bureau of Justice Statistics through the Department of Justice that was published in 1999. 1999. A lot has changed for women in the criminal justice system for then, since then, um, especially that there are more of them. Um, and so when I, when I began to look into it more to see, well, is there any updated information and what else do we know systematically about the outcomes, I realized we really don't know. Um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics did report in 2004 and 2005 that about 3 to 5 percent of incarcerated women reported being pregnant at the time of their intake. Um, a 1998 report um, cited that there were 1,400 births to women in prison, but all of these numbers are, are old. Um, and in addition, we have absolutely no information about other outcomes, not even outdated information about miscarriages, abortions, stillbirths, preterm births, and other pregnancy outcomes that are routinely collected for women in general society, but we have no idea how many women there are. 
Um, now, my research team is actually in the midst of conducting a study um, to, to find out more about this. So we are in the midst of collecting data from 22 prison systems, um, the Federal Bureau of Prisons and, um, and the largest jails in this country, um, to find out over a year's period of time uh, what all these outcomes are. If you're just joining us on KCBS In-Depth, we are talking about the conditions pregnant women find themselves in when they are incarcerated in this country. My guest is Dr. Carolyn Suffren. She's an obstetrician, gynecologist at Johns Hopkins University, and she treated pregnant women in the San Francisco County Jail for several years. She's also now a medical anthropologist, and so she's put all this experience and knowledge together in her new book called Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars. I'm Jane McMillan. Can you give us some personal stories to help explain this situation and really this paradox? Because no one would want to, in the right mind, would want to be in A in jail, be be a woman with her physical needs in jail, and most important of all, be pregnant in jail and look at giving birth in jail. And yet, a lot of these women come come back into the system, they were at risk before, which got them into the system, and then they come back, and sometimes this is the only consistent care as maybe um, unhealthful uh, as it is, or incomplete as it is, the only care they might get. Can you kind of explain this systemic uh, issue, maybe with some of the stories you came across, the, the real personal stories? There are a lot of contradictions and intersecting forces that create that reality for a lot of a lot of women. And before sharing um, some of the stories, which I think illustrate it the most, um, uh, a brief background, um, which sort of sets the stage for why why jails and prisons, um, in particular, um, provide health care. And there's actually a constitutional legal basis to health care. And many people don't know this. I did not know this until I actually started working inside a jail. But incarcerated people are the only people in our country with a constitutional right to health care. And that's uh, based on a Supreme Court case from the 1970s that determined that uh, neglecting the serious medical needs of prisoners was essentially cruel and unusual punishment. So since then, prisons and jails um, have been mandated constitutionally to provide health care. Now, of course, there's tremendous variability um, in what that care looks like. And so um, from the perspective of, of pregnant people who are coming in and out of jail, to understand some of the stories that I'm about to share, it also requires recognizing that these people have lives outside of jail. You know, we, I'm talking about them as incarcerated pregnant people, um, but they're not always incarcerated. And they have lives before they come to jail. They have lives after they come to jail. And those lives outside of jail and inside of jail are shaped by so many structures in our society and so many forces of, of uh, personal experience and, um, and also social inequalities. And so um, I want to tell you a little bit about a woman whom I call Kima. All of the names uh, have been changed in the book. So I call this woman Kima. And I came to know her um, first during her pregnancy and then after she had her baby. Kima was in her early 30s, and she had uh, two other children um, whom she was not able to raise. They were not in her custody. And when Kima was young, she um, was, uh, was a victim of abuse. Um, she uh, could not stay in school. She um, had difficulty focusing. She never got the mental health care she needed after this. Um, she 
turned eventually to drugs to help self-medicate the troubles that she was experiencing. And she eventually dropped out of high school. She was in and out of um, juvenile detention facilities. Her mother, um, who was not her primary, but one of her primary caregivers in addition to her grandmother, but her mother was also addicted to drugs um, and was in and out of jail. And so as Kima became an adult, um, she still struggled with addiction. Um, She was poor. She is African-American. And that reality of the racial inequality and the racial disparities in whom we incarcerate in our country is so profound and cannot be overlooked and cannot be stated um, enough. Um, So Kima was... um, struggled with addiction, a past history of trauma. Um, she struggled with um, income and, and, uh, and poverty, struggled with housing. Um, and she spent a lot of her time at, um, in single room occupancy uh, hotels in the Tenderloin and in the Mission, um, sometimes spent time on the streets. And she was pregnant again. Um, and when she came into the, to jail one time, um, when she was in her early in her pregnancy, that was the first time she found out she was pregnant um, because she had um, limited and difficult access to health care outside of jail. Um, and so she um, had a pregnancy test when she first came to jail. Um, and uh, throughout the pregnancy, she was released and then rearrested, and she was in and out of jail um, several times uh, during her pregnancy. And um, for her, jail was the only place where she was able to get prenatal care. When she was out on the streets, she was not able to get the mental health care, the drug addiction treatment that she needed that would help sustain her and help help her through um, through her pregnancy in addition to um, being able to access prenatal care. She did not have housing. And so coming in and out of jail, um, while it was certainly you know not not the best thing for her and she didn't necessarily want to be there, she um, she knew that this was the place where she was going to get prenatal care. And uh, like I said, I came to know Kima quite well, and we got to know each other um, um, not only before she gave birth, but after as well. And um, she tried. She went to a drug treatment program, and um, unfortunately, the program just didn't work out for her. It just it wasn't. Um, it didn't. It didn't fit, fit her. She would say she wasn't ready for it. Um, she, you know, then quickly found herself back in jail, in and out of jail. And while she was in jail, she was actually able to um, to see her baby. Um, so she gave birth while she was in jail, um, and the jail went to great lengths to um, to allow visits of her baby um, several times a week um, for about two hours inside the jail. And so she was able. Um, to try to breastfeed her baby. Um, uh, granted, these were limited visits three times a week for two hours. While that may seem like a lot compared to other jails, that is a very limited amount of time if you're a new mother and trying to bond with her baby. And yet, this is about as good as it gets for a pregnant woman who gives birth while in custody. So even at the, you know, it, when when all these arrangements are made and it's as good as it, it can get, it's still pretty bad. Um, and so Kima recognized this. What she also recognized was that um, her life outside of jail was characterized by so much chaos and so much danger and so much violence that she said to me on a number of occasions, 
something that um, just really struck me and, and settled me and made me uncomfortable every time she said it. But she said it each time, and she said, my worst day in jail is better than my best day on the streets. And she would proceed to talk about how dangerous things are in the streets. And then she would say, I mean, I hate it here in jail. I hate it here. People telling you what to do, bossing you around. Um, so she hated it. And yet she also knew that her worst day in jail was better than the best day on the streets. Another of um, your patients uh, that you quoted in the book uh, that you called Karen, and you called her a frequent San Francisco jail inmate, uh, she said, jail brings me back to what being a mother is. That's so sad. It is. And um, it was based on the, for Karen, it was based on the fact, she said this to me after she attended a parenting class that um, that a, um, a program within the jail put on. And she was really enjoying going to these parenting classes um, where she had moment to pause to think about her child, her role as a mother, how to interact with her children. Um, and for her, you know, jail created this environment where she could feel more like a mother than she did outside of jail, where Child Protective Services structured her access to her children. Karen also did not have custody of her children. Um, and in jail, she had a chance to think about motherhood in ways um, that she didn't otherwise. Um, and Karen was, her children actually were already grown, and she she still had this nostalgia, this sense of this this is what being a mother, I, I like thinking about being a mother here in jail. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the challenges of being a woman incarcerated in the United States, specifically a pregnant woman. And my guest is Dr. Carolyn Suffren. She was a doctor in the San Francisco County Jail for several years, treating pregnant inmates at, in the jail. She is an obstetrician and gynecologist at Johns Hopkins, and she has written a book about her experience and her findings called Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars. I'm Jane McMillan. As we're coming to the final segment of the program, which is disappointing for me, there's so much more to talk about, but two things jumped out at me that I wanted to ask you about. And one is you talk about that special considerations are not being made for pregnant women in jail or for women in jail, and maybe not. we shouldn't even use the word special. And that actually gets to the crux of the societal problem in that the, the even the physical, the most basic physical needs of women aren't taken into consideration. That's maybe a reflection of society at large. But in the microcosm of prison, that seems to be a huge issue that's not still not being met, which is why we have legislation being proposed on the floor of the Senate. That's right. Can you imagine that we need a law to say that women who are in prison need to have access to menstrual products? Um, but because the system was designed with men in mind as sort of the default prisoner, you have to you have to have these afterthoughts and these um, these uh, interventions to say, hey, wait a second, women are different and have different needs than incarcerated men. It's difficult, and we've had programs about you know the issue of mass incarcer incarceration and basic. Uh, care levels in prison and the death penalty, and it's and it can be very difficult for a lot of folks to to feel empathy or sympathy for somebody incarcerated. And I think I saw the term in one article called an unworthy mother if she's mm -hmm. in jail at all, or um, 
you know, when you talked about that this is an economic and a racial uh, uh, kind of a culmination of a lot of societal ills. Um, so what would you say to someone who says, well, they're in jail for a reason. Do you expect it to be a picnic? I mean, are these are they getting basic medical care? And why is this an issue we should be or the general public should be concerned about? I think that's a that's something that that needs to be put out there and asked. Absolutely. And uh, there are several layers of answers to that question, and it all comes down to understanding who we are as a society and who who the people in our society are, and recognizing that the people who are in jail are the people in our community. They are not always in jail. As I said, you know, about Kima and everyone else, they have a life before jail and they have a life after jail. And um, these are the people that you sit next to on the bus, that you see at the mall, that you walk by on the street and not, you know, sometimes they're um, homeless people, sometimes they're not. They're people everywhere. Um, And incarceration, especially mass incarceration, has touched everybody in some way, even if you think it hasn't, because we're all complicit in this system where, you know, if, if jail is the only place where a pregnant woman feels that she can get prenatal care, that's a problem with everything outside of jail. If jail can be that place for someone, then how are we failing as a society? And these women, they may appear on the surface to to some people to have made bad choices, um, but you also have to look at the circumstances of their lives and what they've been born into and the way that our society is structured, um, especially the institutionalized and systemic racism that characterizes the lives of so many people who are incarcerated, and that if you are black, you are much, much, much more likely to be imprisoned for a, um, a, for example, a drug-related crime than if you are if you are white, and so we are all part of that reality. And we're talking a lot with with a lot most of these women. It is drug-related or what they call crimes of survival, not necessarily violent crime. That's it, right. And Kima, for instance, one of the times she was incarcerated during her pregnancy, she was arrested for shoplifting a bar of Dove soap. So these most, and this is especially uh, particularly true of women in jail, um, is that the majority of women in jail um, and the majority of incarcerated women in prison, too, are are imprisoned for nonviolent offenses. Um, And that especially for women, they are often um, related to survival. And some, some women would tell me about, you know, needing to steal diapers for their babies. And um, one of the things that keeps some women, especially poor women and women of color, coming in and out of jail or staying in jail for long periods of time um, is that they can't afford their bail. And so they're there for a very petty offense, but they can't afford to get out. And so that is something that keeps our jails overflowing in many places. Do we know about uh, better or worse outcomes um for the children of women who've been incarcerated, may have given birth um, when they get out of jail, or even if they have to stay in for a long time, the outcomes for the children to have better access to their mothers, regardless of the circumstance of where that access is, in jail or out. 
So studies that have been done of the children of incarcerated parents um, have shown that these children are more likely to become enmeshed in the criminal justice system themselves when they become adults. Um, and so having that exposure, having the separation from your parents, um, uh, mother or father, um, is you know has a tremendous long-term impact on the next generation. Well, we thank you so much for your expertise. I highly encourage folks to to read your book. Um, it, it's a view into a world that many of us will never understand. And we look forward to the research you're doing now because we still don't know so much. There's so much we don't know, I should say, about women, their outcomes in jail, their pregnancies, the health of their babies. So thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Jane. My guest on KCBS In Depth has been Dr. Carolyn Suffren, obstetrician and gynecologist at Johns Hopkins. She is a medical anthropologist who worked for several years in the San Francisco County Jail delivering care to pregnant women. And her book, based on all of that experience and knowledge, is Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. at 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates.